0: It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 110, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Jean-Paul Cortez is most famous for being the founder and owner of Roxbury Farm in New York's Hudson Valley. He operated Roxbury Farm from 1990 through about 2015 when he started work with the Hudson Valley Farm Hub to create and then to run a professional farmer training program where he is now the associate director for farm training. Roxbury Farm is a 245-acre integrated farming operation with 100 acres dedicated to vegetable production for a 1,000-member CSA. Jean-Paul shares the details of Roxbury's green manure rotation, the details of how they use unique crops, careful scheduling, and a summer fallow period to clean the fields of weeds and pathogens, allowing for more efficient field operations. We also discuss the details of the semi-permanent bed system that complements the soil-building cover cropping program. John Paul's success as a farmer and his distinctive leadership builds upon the recognition of his skills as a teacher and mentor on organic practices, land stewardship, whole farm planning, and farm business development. And we discuss how he brings this all to bear in the pro-farmer training program at the Hudson Valley Farm Hub. John Paul also shares some of the techniques that he used at Roxbury Farm to train employees and establish expectations, as well as to help people avoid mistakes and misunderstandings. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. bcsamerica.com And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. vermontcompost.com And by Small Farm Central, providers of member assembler CSA management software. Member assembler has the flexibility to serve the needs of the myriad of farmers business models as well as serving non-traditional local food subscriptions like meat, fish, dairy and fruit CSAs and CSFs. smallfarmcentral.com. Jean-Paul Cortens, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hi Chris, thank you for having me. I don't know if you know this but for the 100th episode, uh, I had a I had a friend interview me for the show and she asked me who were people on my on my bucket list to get on this show. And uh, and I you were one of them, so I'm really pleased that you're here today. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank
1: you. And um, I feel quite honored that you uh, mentioned my name.
0: All right, so I'd like to start off by just having you kind of give us a lay of the land in your life. I know you've got a, a couple of projects going on and and the new work that you're doing with the Hudson Valley farm hub, uh, even though I think you're, you're more known for the Roxbury farm work that you've done, but if you kind of just tell us about where you are and what you're doing.
1: Sure. Yeah. So uh, in 1990, uh, I founded Roxbury farm and um, you know, that has gone through, you know, from basically five acres of vegetables to now it is becoming a 425 acre um, you know, integrated farming operation, um, whereby um, it's pretty solid. And one of the things that I've always done at Roxbury Farm is I work with apprentices. And um, very early on in my career, I realized that um, the word apprentice um, you know in in here, Often is not really the way that we use the word apprentice um, in Europe, where it means that you're doing a formal apprenticeship as part of your agricultural education. And so in the early 90s, already a group of farmers and I came together and we formed um, the CRAFT program, the Collaborative uh, Regional Alliance for Farmer Training. Uh, it was a collaboration between Ah, uh, the very few organic biodynamic farmers that were in the area in the Hudson Valley, and in the Pioneer Valley of Massachusetts. So um, we really had to scrape together the twelve farmers that were actually working at that time in a pretty large area, and uh, we all felt the same way. We wanted to do more training. So training has been dear to my heart. And um, about three years ago, um, I was invited by the director of the Local Economies Project. Um, to uh, become involved here with uh, the possible purchase of a large tract of land. And they wanted to incorporate some pharma training. So he got my ear and said, that's very interesting. And, but initially I was hired as a consultant to help them in a transition to organic agriculture. This is a, a 1200 acre uh, property. Actually it's 1600 acres with 1200 acres of tillable land. And, um, And that was uh, farmed um, uh, predominantly in sweet corn. It was a sweet corn operation that you have a big hydro cooler that used to be here and a big packing line and large harvesters. And so they wanted to uh, transition this farming operation to organic methods. So I worked very closely with the farm manager to put some rotations in place um, to prepare for this organic transition. And then the second conversation started that they say like, you know, we want this to really to be a research and education center. It's going to be a nonprofit. It is a nonprofit. And um, would you like to be more involved with uh, creating curriculum for a pharma training program? And that's really where I got more deeper involved and that led to me becoming full-time employed here as the associate director of pharma training at the Farm Hub. And we're going now in our second year, uh, with our pro farmer program, uh, we had um, three pro farmers in the first year, who are going into the second year, and then um, now we're uh, starting with the second cohort of five pro farmers. So we'll have eight pro farmers uh, here uh, working with us at the Hudson Valley Farm Hub. And the idea, and what really got me excited about this working with them, is really the vision that the director brought from LEP brought to the Hudson Valley Farm Hub, which is guided by a triple bottom line, is that it's not good enough to just create uh, successful farmers and, and to have people economically viable. Um, we also have to think about the, the social relationship. We're thinking about equity in general that is, up, uh, you know, often absent in the farming community, not Uh, not only for farmers in, for example, having access to land, but also with farm workers. And then, um, of course, the ecological component uh, is very deeply um, part of our mission here. So um, it has been a really wonderful and exciting opportunity for me to be um, a pioneer again, um, which I was when I founded Roxbury Farm. And, you know, and so for me, pioneering is definitely in my blood. So it's something that I couldn't really um, pass on. And here I am.
0: You know, I've done a lot of reading about uh, conventional business and conventional entrepreneurship, and it's something they talk about a lot is how much different it is to, to start a business or to begin an enterprise than it is to to keep to maintain something and how oftentimes the, the people that are the best at at starting and growing something aren't necessarily the people that are best at keeping it running in the long term because it's (laughs) two entirely different skill sets. It's I, I I love that you've, you know, you've done this creation and now you've kind of stepped on to this next thing. And I'm, I'm really interested in the farm hub because there's, you know, there's, like you said, there's a lot of apprentice programs, internship programs out there that I feel like oftentimes, and I know we use them this way on our farm, the various vocabulary that we used, it was a source of cheap labor. And rather than being a source of, of real in-depth uh, structured farm training. And, and then I've also seen there's a lot of, of incubator programs out there now where people are given a half acre or three quarters of an acre and some access to farm machinery. Uh, but it seems like you've got something that's a little bit more integrated and, and wholly thought out. Can you tell us a little bit about, about how you're actually doing the training there at the farm hub?
1: yeah so um the pro farmers they're actually full time employees um so they they're they get a, a salary, they get benefits um that even includes a wellness fund um so that's one thing that's different. they're clearly they're employees at the farm, even though um significant amount of time about twenty hours a week or so is spent on training. Um, but we do regard them, and I think we really felt it was important that we give them um, an economic foundation to work from, especially if we, um, want to reach out to, uh, people who otherwise do not, uh, have access to pharma training. Um, I, I have to admit that many of the apprentices that have come to Roxbury farm. They were in a position whereby, uh, they could afford to, um, work for $1,400 a month plus housing or something. Um, and, um, because even though they had four years of college degree behind them, if they ever decided to do something differently, they had usually a career to fall back on that would pay them a decent amount of income. We also would like to include people who really um, would not have that opportunity. So for us, paying them has been an important principle. The other one is, is that yes, you're right. There's a lot of uh, training opportunities. Um, There, there is actually Uh, a multitude of choices for people who want to get into agriculture. What we also found is that um, they, they're often relatively small scale. Um, We said like, well, what we don't want to do is train new farmers who are then going to start another CSA or produce for farmers market. Can we train farmers who are willing to scale up? So we're really selecting also um, farmers who are willing to work at a larger scale. So in our curriculum, we uh, include really a, a lot of mechanization, a lot of emphasis on mechanization. Um, they, in the first year, they become certified pesticide applicators and you may ask yourself why, you know, we were only using unrealistic materials. Well, there's a lot to learn from studying the core manual and being able to really know what it means to apply worker safety standards. So that's an important principle. The same thing is they got a gap training, good agricultural practices training last year. They will go through a FISMA training this coming year. So we really want to prepare them um, on, on a little bit different level here. So we're 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 also working very closely with Cooperative Extension in order to give them the tools in horticulture, in plant pathology, in entomology, give them the tools under their belt. So when they're out in the field, they can identify insects, they can identify diseases, they know what materials to use. So they they are able to work on a very efficient and effective scale.
0: So when somebody comes into the program, how many years does the training program go for for a given individual?
1: Well, um, it really depends on the individual. We we had the very first cohort. Um, we had some people with already extensive experience coming in. Um, one of the uh, trainees actually was a vegetable manager before she came here. So for her, the training might be not as long as for some other. But we envisioned this program to be a three to five year program, whereby we are in the very first year we're taking them really and we bring them on on board of um, what. This, the standards are here. What the procedures are on this farm, and bring everybody to the same place. And then slowly, we want to give them more independence, whereby they are able to really try out what it means to run your own enterprise. And they can do that by taking the third year. They can do that by taking on their own crop or or few crops and operate it independently. Track their input costs, and we will assess. You know how successful they are not just how economically viable these operations are um, but also to see if they actually meet a triple bottom line to what extent how did they manage the people they work with how did they take care of the land and how do we monitor that so for us to be successful is to really meet that triple bottom line at the end and to me i really look at uh, pharma training not that different from becoming a medical doctor i think we really have been underestimating the skill level it takes to be successful as a farmer. And so the approach that we have taken with the curriculum is that the amount of information and the amount of knowledge and skill that our farmers would need to have when they complete this program is not that different from the amount of knowledge and skill level that a medical doctor has. And I think that's what it takes to be working uh, on a mid-scale level. Something
0: I think is interesting about the Hudson Valley Farm Hub is that you are promoting, well, you call it a mid-scale level. I mean, you know, when you talk about 100 acres of vegetables, um, for, for a lot of people, that we think of that as being a very large-scale farm. Of course, in a California or Arizona sense, it's pretty tiny, but, but you're not talking about 5 and 10 and 20 acres of produce. How did you end up working on that kind of a scale? Because I know that's one of the hallmarks of Roxbury Farm is that it's, it's, not, a, it's not a small farm.
1: No, I mean, but still, you know, if you look at it from enterprise to enterprise in the sense of like crop enterprises, we are a tiny farm. It's just that um, we are putting all these uh, small uh, crops enterprises together that form together a pretty large farm because, you know, with our CSA at Roxbury, you know, we're producing 40 to 50 different vegetables, um, pork, beef and lamb. And so... Um, between all these enterprises, um, um, we are, you know, as far as revenue is concerned, we're considered a large farm. But when you actually look at how we are growing these crops, um, I would not consider ourselves to be a, uh, um, operating at the mid-scale. We are somewhat mechanized, but, you know, again, um, and we're probably um, have more, me- we could probably handle for each crop, more acreage with the mechanization that we have. Um, but still um it is not uh, near to where we would be able to compete on a wholesale level.
0: And maybe we should back up a bit because I I feel like I know Roxbury Farm pretty well, even though you and I've never met and I've never been to the farm. I've been following what you guys are doing for 20 years out there. But can you tell us for, for our listeners, you kind know, of give us the lay of the land at, at Roxbury Farm? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I don't think we're we're um, you know in in philosophy we're we're not going to be changing that much difference. So I can really speak for both uh, the Farm Up and Roxbury Farm as far as you know what what um, what our principles and philosophies is there, um, which is really based on reduced inputs. And um, yeah, so Roxbury Farm is right now. Um, uh, about 425 acres, um, although there's only 250 acres really of workable land, the rest is really in woodlands or uh, waterways or any other areas that are that are really what we consider to be biodiversity areas. We really um, give that back to the wildlife. And of the 250 acres, uh, about 100 is dedicated to vegetable crop production, although at any given time, and this is really important to understand, in net in vegetables it may be 33 so we are losing or losing i don't i don't like the word losing but we are giving up um uh, uh of about 45 acres of land we're giving up um about thirteen, twelve 12 or 13 acres in headland and harvest lanes and we have done that because we we really um um want to have easy access to our produce we don't want someone to uh, schlep a uh, a crate of broccoli for 200 feet nobody ever walks more than 24 feet with any given bucket or crate to what we call the harvest lane and then the truck picks that up so it takes up a, a certain amount of land then the other half of that vegetable acreage is um uh, dedicated to growing green manures. Um, when we found this farm, um, the levels of phosphorus, potassium in certain areas of the farm were very elevated. It was a potato farm um, using organic fertilizer, which means we would continue to elevate these phosphorus levels um, because, you know, inorganic and manure-based fertilizers, fertilizers, you will find, of course, phosphorus and potassium in certain amounts. If your application is based on how much nitrogen you want to you know give to your vegetable crop, so we decided very early on that in order to both bring the organic matter levels up of our soil and at least not to deplete them and to bring up the nitrogen levels of soil, we would be greatly dependent on green manures. and the other reason for doing that particular rotation whereby we alternate vegetables with green manures in one given year is for our wheat control and so when i talk about this reduced input model i'm looking at like we're not trying to maximize the revenue on our farm um, because we have 250 acres of open land 100 acres of it uh, is uh, very suitable for vegetable crop production and as you hear only 33 is actually put into actual production any given year so Some of that land, um, at least 25 or 30, is in permanent harvest lanes and headland. Uh, But then the other land is then in green manure crops. And what we're finding over time, and uh, I don't have um, any way that how that is documented, Um, I'm not a researcher, but we do know that um, our uh, cost of producing, say, an acre of potatoes has gone down our yield has gone up and what we're finding here is that for me if i have a harvester um, who is trying to find say a a lettuce mix in the weeds and harvesting and basically weeding at the same time that's costing me a great uh, deal of income of uh, uh, and, and increases my cost so our philosophy has always been like if i have clean ground I have fertile ground, and when I say clean, it's not just clean from weed seeds, it's also from pathogens. Um, so if there is a, uh, some kind of a, a, a pathogen on my lettuce, then also, or yellow leaves or anything like that, again, it takes time for that harvester to then be sorting out these uh, leaves while they're harvesting. So when you develop a rotation whereby, um, you know, you have healthy crops, and whereby you have clean land, um, then we're actually looking at like, yes, we could have maximized our revenue by growing hundred acres of vegetables, but we actually are doing better on those 33 because we have really reduced our input cost. We're not really bringing in organic fertilizers because we're actually, we're growing our own fertilizer in the form of green manures. So about 50% of all our nitrogen needs in the vegetables actually comes from green manures. And the other half, we still are dependent on some manures that we are bringing into uh, our vegetable fields, which is by the way, necessary because we're exporting quite a bit of potassium, of course, when you are uh, harvesting these vegetables. So it's not that we're completely trying to stay away from manure altogether or you know compost of manure, but you know we're trying to do some nutrient budgeting there whereby we're not elevating the levels in our vegetable soils um As you know, you know, when you have a continuous vegetable crop production, that that is a real danger.
0: So tell me a little bit more about the practical details of the rotation that you're using. You know, with this with half of your land in cover crops, half in vegetables. Mm -hmm. How are you moving between between crops from year to year to year?
1: Yeah. So it is important that you start. So when I develop a rotation, I usually think three years ahead. I'm thinking about I'm standing in front of a piece of land and I say like, what does it want to become in three years? And so usually it's already in vegetables at a given time. So you have a a way to um, um, think it through what next year's cover crop should be. And um, then really it's a matter of like thinking it through, like how I'm gonna treat the land this year um, to be ready. So if it is now 2017, um, in say in um, uh, 2019, And um, I'm really looking at like, what is, for example, the particular wheat pressure that I'm finding in this land? And also, what is the crop that I imagine would really follow nicely in this particular, based on the history of what has been grown there? So for example, if that field, uh, if I imagine that field will be in potatoes uh, in 2019, um, I'm starting to think about like, how I'm gonna start limiting the wheat pressure of my summer weeds. So I will definitely start working with a summer bare fallow then in that particular piece of land in 2018. So I will not um, grow a cover crop whereby I will not have the ability to do some real good weed control in the months when it is going to be a problem in my potatoes. So looking ahead, um, uh, as far as thinking, making sure I will have the fertility I will have the, um, uh, um, you know, the land clean at the right time of the year. Um, those are kind of things whereby you start thinking a little bit more about um, your rotation. And that's really, it's really that simple. If you're growing a spring crop, you wouldn't want to follow it with a spring bear fallow. Um, you know, there are there are very different weeds at different times in the year if you, Of course, no. And um, it's a matter of cleaning up the land beforehand.
0: And so when you're using that that summer bare fallow, that, of course, is coming between cover crops, right? You're not just it's not like you're just leaving the land bare all year. You're leaving it bare for a specific period of time.
1: When you talk about a summer bare fallow, uh, that land will be open for a certain number of weeks. And then if you have a very dry summer, you might, um, you know, it might be very worthwhile to irrigate that land in order to let the wheat sprout up.
0: And then what are you doing to maintain that bare fallow without excessively tilling the soil? Because that's something I know when, when I experiment with bare fallows, sometimes it felt like, God, we were just out there all the time, working the soil and working the soil. And Mm -hmm. I know that's, I mean, that's not something you really want to be doing.
1: No, I agree with you completely. It's an interesting uh, dilemma. Um, that you're faced with, uh, especially in the transition stages where uh, we inherited uh, at uh, Roxbury Farm a uh, very uh, uh, a seed bank that was tremendous. And so uh, we had to overcome that. And, um, and the only way to really deal with that uh, in some areas was to put it back in hay, uh, whereby we allowed some of these seeds to uh, lose their viability over time. Uh, in other areas, we just had to cultivate them out. But I will tell you, if you are growing some um, very um, vigorous uh, green manure crops, uh, what the Nordells, and by the way, the Nordells have um, always been uh, the role model. We, we, we always talk about in the mid-90s when we adopted this particular rotation, we we said, like, we're Nordelling, our farm. And, um, and, and I, I, I last time I checked it, actually, in the dictionary right now, Nordelling. So um, this is something that um, anyone can do. That means that you rotate, basically, your green manures out of... Um, uh, um, into vegetables uh, alternate years. And what we have found um, by doing soil testing is that we actually have been increasing our organic matter levels despite the fact that we are doing this incredible intensive tillage. So we haven't quite figured it out yet because this is something, of course, that you talk to the soil scientists, they will say like tillage is an addiction, you shouldn't be doing it. And there's no way you're gonna maintain your organic matter levels and you're not gonna have aggregate stability. And what we're finding actually with this rotation is that we, um, we moved blackberry Farm in, uh, um, 2000 to another piece of land, and between 2000 and uh, 2013, 2014, we basically doubled the organic matter levels. Wow! Uh, without the import of a lot of compost, so we can do this. So I, I hear what you're saying. I am not advocating extensive tillage by any means. But what we have found is that you can really increase aggregate stability. You. Can definitely increase uh, uh, active carbon and um, and increase your organic matter levels over time. But you're going to have to really select your green manures very carefully. And one thing that we have found, which is really important, is not about how much organic matter you plow under. It's what kind of organic matter you plow under. Make sure there is a legume mixed in with your green manures, and that has been really important. So having legumes in your mix and having a diversity of cover crop mixes has been key in increasing the organic matter.
0: When you say a diversity of cover crop mixes, are you doing these, I'm trying to think of the right word now that I've, that I've heard of, but these very diverse cover crops where you might have five, six, or seven different species growing at a time?
1: Yeah, I don't go that extreme, but definitely three or four. Yeah. For example, one of my, um, Favorite mixes uh, for the summer, um, for a summer mix, is crotillaria with Japanese millet, sunflower, and um, either regular 40-10 field peas, um, or um, that would reseed themselves in the fall, or um, go for a, a cowpea. So there would be four in that mix, and I would seed, um, you know, about 10 pounds of Japanese millet, about 50 pounds of crotillaria or sun hemp. Uh, about five pounds of sunflower and then 50 pounds of cowpeas or 50 pounds of regular peas.
0: That's really interesting. That's not, I mean, when I think cover crops, I always think, you know, oats and peas or rye and hairy vetch, but you're using some really interesting species. Yeah. And they got very tall. Mm-hmm. And how did you get to those? I mean, how did, I mean, I, I just had to Google Crotillaria because I've never actually heard of Crotillaria before Which either means I'm way out of touch or that that you're doing some really weird things, one of the two.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, it's, again, like um, what uh, some of us like to do, we go back to these old textbooks. I mean, see, all this stuff was figured out before 1930, and a lot of research has been done on this. So all you have to go back to these old textbooks, and uh, you'll find them all. I mean, uh, Adrian Peterson um, wrote a wonderful book called Green Manoring in the 1930s. And he listed every single one of them and with all their benefits. So, and I got really intrigued by crotalaria and people told me you can't use that because it's a tropical legume. Well, this is one of those things side effects of uh, global warming. Uh, apparently uh, we can use uh, crotal We're able to do it.
0: So, I mean, just because we're talking about crotalaria tell us a little bit more about that as a crop and, and what it does for you and why you, why you chose that. I mean, just to, to get down in the, I was going to say get down oh, in the sure. weeds, but just to get down in the cover crop a little bit here.
1: Yeah. So we've been growing um, uh, soricum sudan for many years. And I was trying to find a legume that could actually compete with sorghum sudan. And um, I tried forage soybean that was really expensive. And any other legume was just being shaded out by the soricum. And we really like sorghum because, you know, it's a tremendous amount of biomass that you can work under at the end of the season. And, um, and so until I, I basically started reading Peterson and say, like, let's see if you come up with a really a tall legume here. And Crotillaria is one of the legumes. It's about six feet tall. It's a cowpea. And, um, and it effectively competes um, as long as you don't uh, up your rates too much of the sorghum or the Japanese millet, um, it worked quite well. So, and that's really, um, it, it was just one of these things that I said, like, well, you know, let's try it out. And um, initially I had a hard time convincing um, my uh, seed supplier to ship it to New York. They didn't think it would work. We had similar problems with that, with bell beans is built. Nobody on the East Coast goes bell beans as the West Coast crop and bell beans is also one of my favorite uh, green manure crops for the spring um, that we um, utilize. But anyway, so we have been, you know, I, I I do things. um, I think it through and, you know, this is what you do. You try things out and um, you fail and you succeed sometimes. So uh, for every successful cover crop that I've grown, there's probably a few other ones that didn't work out as well.
0: I want to go back to, to the bare fallow and, and I'm I'm interested in how you actually carry that out at a functional level. Like what tools are you using? How often are you using mm-hmm. them? How do you have them set up?
1: Sure. Um, it all depends on, you know, to what extent I have to make a, a seat bet, um, uh, you know, what, what I'm working with to begin with. If the bare fellow follows, say, like a spring lettuce. There's not a lot of tillage that needs to happen in order to create what we call a bare fallow. Um, but maybe in some cases, when I'm working under a green manure crop, a spring green manure crop, then I will have to use some more deep tillage. And um, we don't use a moldboard plow. I haven't used a moldboard plow for over 20 years. Uh, we only use a colt chisel plow if we do that. Uh, we make sure we chop the green manure up as finely as possible and then uh, we call it just a plow and then after that we really follow with what we call a perfecta two harrow it's a, a combination bed maker um, and you can set that um, at any depth you want anywhere between two to six inches although i really rarely go six inches deep with that tool um, it really would pull awfully deep but usually it's two to four inches and then it's a very effective tool, especially if you have perennial um, weeds, bindweed or quackgrass. It will bring it to the surface and let it dry out. And um, it really depends on how much rainfall you have during your summer bare fallow to what extent you're going to be effective. Um, you know, one of the things is that I am very careful about when it comes to aggregate stability is to be concerned that you don't work the soil too wet, but you also don't work it too dry. Uh, When you work it too dry, you have that same problem. The water really functions as some sort of glue between these aggregates and you create dust. And when you're working it too wet, you smear the soil. So finding that perfect moisture when you do your bare fallow is really important. So if you have to irrigate these plots, that would be ideal if you don't have Uh, the ability to do that, um, then the summer bare fallow is not as successful, except, of course, for your perennial weeds. But then you sometimes wait until you have some moisture in the soil in order to put your equipment uh, on the field. But I would really warn farmers for not working their soil when it is too dry in that summer bare fallow. How dry
0: is too dry when you're working the soil?
1: Oh, you'll see when you create dust. I think always look back I mean, you when you see that your soil is being pulverized, um, and that's why I don't like rotavators or anything like that. I like any tool that finds the natural breaking points um, of your soil structure. So, um, I mean, when I, I went to uh, ag school and um, my soil science teacher, he basically took a lump of soil and dropped it from three feet down. He said, like, look, those are your natural breaking points and um he said like do not have a tool that does more than this and i have used that as a guidance it's like you know so am i going to do something that is um uh, going to do more violence than dropping it from a three feet height um, i'm probably doing some violence to a soil so that will be one way of, of um, a litmus test but um you really are able to see um when you are pulverizing the soil. One way is to also see it is when you see a discoloration. When you see a discoloration, you know that your aggregates, your sand, silt, clay, and organic matter are being separated. Um, Easy to see when you take some soil, you rub it between your fingers, and you see that now suddenly the soil has a different color. And that's a good way of telling like, oh, look, I just really rubbed all the aggregates apart. And that is what you're looking for: is for stable aggregates, stable aggregation of your soil.
0: I like that. That's a nice. That's a nice practical tip. I've never, I had never heard that before.
1: Are you following that Perfecta
0: then with a with a cultipacker or anything to kind of to to create some good seed to soil contact between the weed seeds and the soil?
1: Yeah, you would think that, right? Um, I uh, I am not a fan of a cultipacker. A cultipacker is. is definitely one of those tools. Um, we we are using it when we're reseeding our hay fields, um, but I don't like it at all. Um, it really does a lot of damage to the aggregate. So a rotovator and a cultipacker are two tools that I like to stay away from. Okay, So you're not doing
0: anything to firm that seed bed back up after you've gone through with that bare fallow with the Perfecta?
1: No, precipitation will do that. That's really what, you know, precipitation is a great way of creating good seed to soil contact.
0: And then how long would you do a bare fallow for? Like, is that something that you're going to do for three weeks or six or 10?
1: Yeah, I would say for about three to four weeks, and that's all you're going to need.
0: And then really, like you said, a matter of timing that for the crop that you're, that you're investing in for the future.
1: Correct. Yes, Correct. So it's really thinking about like, this field is gonna be in potatoes the following year, so I'm gonna flush out these weeds uh, in the previous season. And then it's that field that is preceded by a spring cover crop and then a fall cover crop. Now I I will say though, that once you have your weeds somewhat under control, um, you can move away from your summer bare fallow. And that's where we are at the place right now at Roxbury, where we have our weeds under control. And you can start moving into some very aggressive, uh, summer green manures. And here we're using shade as a form of weed control. So what we're finding with our sorghums and with our Japanese millet and crotalariats is that there will be a bit of an understory of weeds there, but because there's so much shade there that these weeds that have germinated in, a, in, in the shade of the, um, those large, uh, tall cover crops, they never form any seed heads. So here is a way whereby we are um, allowing for storm germination to take place in the year before the vegetable crop. But we're not using a summer of fallow to eliminate these weeds. We're actually using shade to make sure that uh, these weeds do not reproduce.
0: Now, when you talked about clean fields and the importance of, of having, for example, a salad mix or a, or a lettuce crop that's really clean from weeds, you also mentioned having them clean from pathogens. Can you talk a little bit about how you, how you do that?
1: Yeah, I think when, a, when you look at a vegetable rotation, um, and um, I, I have some resources actually on the Roxbury Farm website, you will see that um, certain pathogens are not restricted um, to be hosted by just one particular plant family so um, what you will see often is that if you want to break that cycle of not giving a host to that particular pathogen is that growing a cereal is often the best way to break that and um, this is really where you are looking at by growing a completely different crop that is uh, otherwise not really within your rotation um, you, you are in a way, um, depriving that pathogen of a host, and that really allows you then to clean up your land, so to speak. And I've always looked at uh, vegetables as being this—not um, um, uh, not so great as a rotation within themselves within plant families. They are, um, as far as what they do to the soil, they I don't consider them to be soil builders. Um, they're they 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 don't create a lot of shades, um, and they often uh, uh, you know you have somewhat compacted situations of your soil. When you're growing these green manures, you're creating this environment in general that is much more conducive to beneficial organisms. Um, one way that early on in the soil health test, um, one of the parameters that um, Harold van S. Es- found uh, was uh, the, uh, the absence or the presence of beneficial nematodes to be a real indicator of a healthy soil. So what do you need to do to increase the um, presence of beneficial organisms is to really create a healthy soil um, by creating great pore space and to really allow for that. And again so if you have these off seasons whereby you can really build your soil and you're growing a very aggressively rooting crop, um, then you are able to also increase your beneficial organism and decrease your pathogens.
0: That's interesting that you just focused on the the aggressively rooting part of the cover crop. Mm-hmm. So, you know, cause I mean, Absolutely. obviously when you, when you drive by, you, you know, you're looking at the tops, but, but you're really interested in what it's doing down below the soil.
1: Absolutely. Um, both from a, um, a rooting perspective But also, you know, if you are digging up your legumes, you want to see those nodules. you want to see them nice and pink. They're they're pumping nitrogen into your soil. But for example, a wonderful uh, crop that we're using right now at the farm hub in the transition period is yellow blossom sweet clover. Yellow blossom sweet clover is one of those fantastic, very large legumes that form a tremendous amount of biomass. But most importantly, they are really, really good at breaking up any possible uh, fracture pan down below. So those roots will go down, and um, not only will they break up any kind of uh, you know hard pan or plow pan, um, especially following a subsoiler, they will really follow that subsoiler down further, down into the soil. Um, they will also, with their root system, go down seven, nine feet, and bring up nutrients that were otherwise lost and bring them up back to the surface. So it's another way, to, again, to reduce your inputs.
0: So now you said that when you guys moved your farm to the new land in 2001, you, you started Hawthorne Valley Farm in 1990, but then, then you moved 10 years later. When you, when you made that move, did you guys immediately dive into this Nordell rotation? or Was that something you had been
1: doing before? no and and it was a nice slip there I I did not start Hawthorne Valley Farm I did work there but
0: oh whoops (laughs) you're right okay sorry I'm Um, giving you some credit here (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: I did work for three years at Hawthorne Valley but um, yeah no so when we started Boxberry Farm in 1990 um, I met the Nordells in the early 90s and um well, the other person I met in the early '90s, there's a couple of changes that I made, and there were there were really, um, basically the Nordells and then the Denisons. I met the Denisons up in Maine, and I um, was introduced then to the permanent bed system that he had done on 150 acres of vegetables there, uh, Brian and Justine Denison, and um, and then the other thing, almost kind of the same time. I met the Nordells and then I met their rotation. And so I really created a combination of the semi-permanent bed system that I learned from Brian as I learned that rotation then from uh, from the Nordells. So those were really two very important um, places where uh, I adjusted from a European approach of flat fields and um, whereby in Holland we use every square inch of land and it's unthinkable to take a piece of land out of production because land costs about 100,000 euro a hectare, um, you know, to this more uh, less intensive approach whereby uh, we have plenty land, um, but we really don't have uh, the labor and we don't have the energy, we don't have the equipment to really Work it so intensely as the Dutch do. So there's really was for me, like um, being in the U.S. Really adapting to what you know this was what was demanded of me. And um, so yeah, so it was in the early 90s that we that we started very aggressively growing these green manure crops and uh, broadening our rotation.
0: And how did you go about making that transition? Because I know on my farm when we when we started adopting the Nordell rotation, it was difficult. And in fact, for, for a large portion of our land, for our best land where we probably would have benefited the most from doing it. I didn't feel like I could because I didn't feel like I could take that land out of production and make the investment with it because I needed to keep producing rather than building productive capacity.
1: Yeah. I think that's a really great way of putting it. It's an investment. And um, I, I think this is a dilemma Um, And and this is a choice. I don't have any judgment about it when people are not able to do it at any given time because everybody knows what revenue they have to create or you produce that given year. So, you know, and and then if you do have to meet a particular production goal, you can do that. Um, And can you afford to make that investment, really? And that's kind of like, and usually when we make an investment, We don't pay for it in any given year. We usually pay it off over time. Um, This is very hard to imagine, you know, um, taking out say an operating loan to take your land out of production because it's going to pay off over time. And it is daring Uh, and you're working with nature. It's not as easy as doing a cost analysis for this as saying like, well, if I buy this tractor, it's an investment and it's gonna pay itself back over a certain number of years, but it is very similar. You have to look at it like that, that this is long-term. This is not like, oh, well, if I do this, you know, there's an immediate payback. This
0: takes time. Now, you mentioned the denizens who were farming up in Maine and their permanent bed system.
1: And, and
0: I mm-hmm. see from the pictures on the Roxbury Farm website that, that you guys are using a raised bed production system. But can, yep. can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by a permanent bed system?
1: Mm-hmm. It is a semi-permanent bed system in the sense that we are taking our beds out at the end of the season and we plant our cover crop, again, on flat land. But the, the, what it is is that it is, to a certain extent, um, it's a uh, controlled field traffic. So because we have these permanent harvest lanes, we know where our sections are. And every section will have eight uh, raised beds. And in the case of Roxbury Farm, these raised beds are six feet from center to center. At the farm help, we have 10 raised beds that are five feet or 60 inches from center to center. So it's still about 50 or 51 feet that is open ground in between each harvest lane. So we are able to find these beds back every year. um, And what we are breaking up these the, the the where the field traffic does go, but it is really important in that we after primary tillage, we never put a tractor wheel on the area where we're growing the crops. So after the chisel plow goes through this section, um, where we do our and in the earlier years we had to first go through with a subsoiler which is no longer necessary this this takes a number of years that you are eliminating your plow pan after years of moldboard plowing and so and then the 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 only primary till it could do is a a chisel plow that has actually an attachment in the back that's built by unferfert which is an estine and a leveling bar so it is really primary and secondary tillage in one pass and then after that we uh, lay out what we call our rough beds and Brian had uh, built a rough bedder out of a disc and um, with some um, um, you know some shields on the side and that was his rough bedder, it was basically an offset disc with some uh, shields that were, you know, he built it in his own shop um, we ended up uh, settling um, about six years ago maybe um, for trying to lay these beds out three at a time by uh, purchasing a a double disc. So imagine that this is an equipment that lays out three beds at any given time um, with a row marker, whereby we are creating a hill whereby the center to center again is 72 inches. And so at the farm up again being 60, Inches uh, for spent at the center. So these are two discs, one large disc and one smaller disc, and then opposite of each other, creating basically a hill. It's a tool that is uh, mostly used, um, say, in North Carolina for creating uh, hills for sweet potatoes, um, and they're either 36 or 40 inches apart. We basically space them out a little further with the same effect, Um, and that really then forms our wheel tracks. The nice thing about having a a, 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 a disc better that forms these beds three at a time is that we were more accurate about the spacing. It was, if you lay one bed out at a time and you repeat that 10 times in a section, you're gonna be a couple of inches off by the end of that, you know, when you make your final pass. So laying out the number of beds in one pass allows us to have more accuracy to find our beds back again, where they were uh, two years before. And um, because it is every other year, ideally. Um, and so this is, um, that then is followed by an additional pass of a, uh, a small perfecta better that then levels that out. And then we make our final pass if needed, um, because for many crops this is a sufficient planting bed for say corn or anything like that, or cabbage. If we want a nice seat bed, um, we're actually following that with another combination seat bed maker that's mounted in the front and a, a buckeye better in the back to make a really nice flat surface. So that will take, it will take a number of passes, but you can hear that we are driving on that field each time to get a smoother and smoother seat bed. And for us, it's really important that at least that tractor tire is always in the same traffic. So it always follows the same um, uh, uh, place. Uh, so, and there's never any compaction where we end up then placing our seed or placing our plants.
0: Jean-Paul, with that, we're going to stop here, take a break, get a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Jean-Paul Cortens from Roxbury Farm in the Hudson Valley Farm Hub in upstate New York. I didn't say Hawthorne Valley Farm that time. <laughs> Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company. Vermont Compost potting soils are a really special product. I used Vermont Compost Sport B as a blocking mix and a potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew great transplants with it. I mean, really great transplants year after year after year, and we save time, money, and management hassles compared to mixing our own. At a time in the organic movement when we're seeing more and more companies jumping on the organic bandwagon, Vermont Compost is a reminder of the art and the craft of making a great potting soil. Not a good potting soil, a great potting soil. And one thing I've always appreciated about Vermont Compost is their ability to put out a consistent product year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something you can count on. By the way, Jean-Paul counts on them too at both Roxbury Farm and at the Hudson Valley Farm Hub. VermontCompost.com Perennial support is also provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but it is truly a superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy, where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability that people expect of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability every farm needs. I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I'm not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors with the kind of features found on their four-wheel cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary flows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com And all right, we're back with Jean-Paul Cortez of Roxbury Farm and the Hudson Valley Farm Hub. I'm assuming that what we're talking about at, at Roxbury Farm, a lot of those those production techniques also apply with what you're doing at Hudson Valley Farm Hub, right?
1: Yeah, and I think what is really exciting here is that, and I already mentioned that to you before, is that so we've made all these changes at Roxbury Farm, and it's like, okay, fantastic, uh, wonderful story, anecdotal stuff. Um, but the bottom line is, is that show me your documentation. Well, you know, we were busy farming, <laughs> so I can tell you we doubled the organic matter over, um, you know, thirteen years or whatever it took, and you know, it was one point four to begin with, so we brought up to two point eight, right? And it's still remarkable. But the thing though is, is that right now um, I have the opportunity. Um, not only to be able to teach that to the next generation, but to document it. So we have a partner organization that is actually, um, uh, they are based at Hawthorne Valley and Harlemville, it's the Farmscape Ecology Program. And they are working here to do a lot of mapping and monitoring here at the hub. Um, We did a soil health test as a baseline documentation last year on the full acreage um they're looking at the full ecology of the whole farm so what i am really interested in is to be able to now have the documentation in place that say five years or ten years from now we can say see here are the changes that took place after we converted from conventional sweet corn to these vegetables and small grains beans and corn um, and we can now see this is what the yield is, this is what the organic matter is, this is, but in much greater detail. So, this is a very exciting opportunity, uh, not just for me, but for all of organic farming, um, that we have this gigantic lab where we can monitor all these changes that we organic farmers have claimed are better for the soil. And so, having the resources available here to do that documentation. Is, is, a, is a huge change compared to working at Roxbury where we were really in the trenches and ultimately um, we had to make a living from every activity we did every day and so this is a, a, a luxury.
0: That actually connects tangentially with something that I wanted to talk to you about, which, which is you're not involved on a daily basis with Roxbury Farm anymore and yet Roxbury Farm continues on. Mm-hmm. That's not an easy transition to make. I mean, I I can't imagine it was an easy transition for you to step away, and I also I also can't imagine that it was an easy transition for Roxbury Farm itself to make to suddenly have you not be there.
1: Yeah, I I understand that that could be a perspective. Um yeah, I think that I was definitely struggling for a number of years to say like um you know, I am. I really worked myself out of a job uh, at Roxbury Farm. Um, the farm was kind of like we're there. Um, my body did not allow me to be on the harvest crew anymore, my my knees don't allow me to kneel in the field for more than half an hour before I start, you know, becoming stiff. And so um, I was doing a lot of the tractor work. I was really isolating myself from the crew. Um, And um, and really some of the people who were working for multiple years at the farm, in some ways, I was really in the way for some upward mobility there because they don't they would like to do the haymaking and, you know, and that kind of stuff. So um, in many ways, it was a logical thing for me to say, listen, I've reached an age right now. Um, I don't have to actively farm every day anymore it's time for me in my career to pass on the information I have to the next generation. So this is really, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think that, um, I, so I have really it's been a very slow transition for me from the daily operation whereby, uh, Jody and Carrie are, we're really running the farm for longer than I have been gone there. And so uh, Joe and I have been putting these procedures in place very, very carefully um, over the last 15, 16 years, and you know you are familiar with our manuals um, that are online. And this is something that has really greatly helped to create an uh, an an, an uh, environment what I like to refer to as like self-management, whereby people know their job, they know what is expected of them, and they're given a certain amount of autonomy to execute their job. There's no way that anyone can manage as diversified a farm as Roxbury by telling everybody every day what to do. Um, People know what they do. And we have employees that have been with, some of them have been with us for 12, 13 years and are not going anywhere. And that is really what allows a farm like that to continue. It's a highly diversified farm and it cannot be carried by a single person. Um, it has to be carried by by a team, and I think that's um, you know we, we we successfully created that environment, and um, and uh, Jody and Carrie are are excellent farmers who can make a lot of these executive decisions. You know they have that knowledge and skill level to do that, and there there are a few times when they call me up and have a question, but it is rare. Um, if anything, I'm a I'm a silent partner and I look at the financials and we look over it. Things look good. So and we do, you know, of course, um make a decision what equipment we purchase for the following year. And um right now we're in the process of purchasing more land and so this is ongoing and I find it exciting that um that I'm able to step away from this and things are going on. Um because it should not be dependent on any individual uh, how an operation is being run.
0: And so you said that you guys worked on creating these procedures over the years. How did you go about doing that? How did you actually structure things on the farm? The procedures are one piece, but there's, there's I, I know because I've worked with farms who've done extensive procedures, it's not the only piece that makes it possible mm-hmm. for other people to step into those positions of authority and responsibility.
1: No, no, you're absolutely right. I think you, you really, um, you, you not really, you know, hire someone and, and put them in charge of a certain thing you train them. And then, um, it's really about, um, uh, slowly giving them more and more autonomy. Um, when someone comes first on and we, we move relatively slowly with people, if people come to the farm and, they expect that they're going to be involved in a haymaking year one or doing, um, primary tillers in year one, they're going to be in for a youth's disappointment. Uh, they start at the bottom, um, of whatever work needs to be done. they will be planting, weeding, hoeing in the greenhouse. they will be in the washing and packing. And then as they're getting a feel for the flow of the operation, um, they can step into more responsible positions, but that takes years. But this is not something that, um, this has to be an operation that's run by people who have a long-term investment. And we are blessed with um, having had very, very talented people attracted to working at Roxbury Farm. So yes, there is a certain amount of um, being fortunate involved in this as well.
0: You just mentioned the importance of training. And again, you guys have put a huge amount of effort into developing resources that you've made available publicly. And we're going to put a link to that on the show notes page uh, on, on the Farmer to Farmer podcast website. But th- tell me a little bit more about, about how you do your training when you get somebody new on the farm. Because again, obviously you're not just handing them a manual and you're not just reading the manual to them. What do you guys you know. do to get people up to speed?
1: Well, I mean, we uh, we always start with an orientation week. Um, and now I'm speaking for Roxbury Farm. It's different, of course, the training we do here at the Farm Hub, It's it's much more intensive. Um, and it's much more uh, theoretical based uh, here as well. There's a lot of knowledge training happening here at the Farm Hub that is not necessarily happening at Roxbury Farm. It's all based on the actual activities. So it's really about showing people that this is um, how something is being done. And I think that you know, it will be, Taking too much time to go into all the different procedures, but imagine that um, this is um, you know what well, first of all, it is really important that you communicate in many different ways how you expect the job is to be done. so we are very dependent on what we call cheat sheets uh, on list, task list um, so people know. If they're new to the farm or they even if they have been for a couple of years on the farm, they know through the weekly task list um, what what we have decided, you know, what needs to be accomplished in that particular week. That gives them a sense of like, okay, I'm grounded. I know that this week we're going to plant corn. This week we're going to, you know, hold the letters or whatever it may be. We're going to make hay. And so they know the overview. So they feel somewhat grounded. It's a very important part of the training. And if possible, we'd like to involve them in the creation of the weekly task list. We also want it to be the eyes and ears of the farm and mention it in the morning meeting. We meet every meeting. Uh, We start off with a procedure whereby we check in with everyone to make sure that everybody is right there, ready to start the job. And uh, then we communicate with them what the objectives are through the day. So we have a weekly task, list, but in the morning meeting, we can articulate with them what the objectives for the morning are, and for the afternoon are, and how the fl- how we imagine the flow will happen. Then there is a clear, for example, with the CSA harvest, there's there's a harvest list. It will tell how many buckets need to be on the truck. So nobody has to think about this, or the buckets will be all on the truck or the, the baskets. And then there is a clear um, layout in the field whereby we... D- the, Uh, creating our rotation whereby nobody has to start looking for things. So for example, we know that particular greens are harvested uh, before eight o'clock in the morning. We'll group those together in one section, even though there might be five different plant families there. And because we are, you know, having this rotation with green manures, we don't have to look that carefully. We can group different plant families together. It's more important that the crew is there in one section, harvesting all these different crops and when they're actually harvesting them we have to sit next to them and we will show them like okay this is how you hold your knife this is how you grab the crop this is how you place it this is how many uh um, beets you want to have in a bunch this is how you put your rubber band on this is how you put the twist tie on whatever it might be you you guide people through that and then we are developing expectations we we say like um so you harvest that you know so many cases of this product. Well, you know, I did about, you know, um, twice as many. Let's see how I can improve your procedures so you can keep up with my speed because I'm really not any better than you. There's probably a different way to hold my knife. It might be a different way I put the the bunch on. You know, we always assume that there's nothing to do with um, the fact that people don't want to increase their, their speed. It's a matter of like looking at um, how they... Uh, move their body how they move their hands and um with the focus being on like I remind them all all the time like you are looking for the minimal amount of movement you really if every movement you make too much you're tiring yourself out we can't afford to make a movement that is unnecessary so we're focused on that and that is really that's that gets ingrained in everything we do we we really try to minimize movements so you set things up so it is clear um, how uh, the washing setup is and you guide people through that and in the beginning there's going to be a lot of like just watch us how we do this you take good observations and let the crew that has done this for 10 years let, let them just show you how we do this and so a lot of learning happens by osmosis um, that you don't have to really explain everything um, verbally. Uh, a lot of hap- happened by example, and having long-term employees who are quite good at doing their job are the best teachers.
0: Who makes up your long-term labor force at
1: Roxbury Farm? Yeah, so we have um, it's, I would say one third of the employees, maybe a little bit more, are full-time year-round employees. Uh, One third are seasonal employees that live locally. And then one third is probably people that come for one or two years. So there's a real balance there between, um, and I would say that the local employees that are seasonal, they work for eight months of the year, um, they are extremely important. They, you know, it's just that we don't carry them over the winter or we bring them in over the winter when we maybe pack the winter vegetables. But they're really, um, you know, we, we can't, at the, this point, Roxbury from cannot employ uh, 10 full-time employees.
0: So what are you doing in the wintertime that helps you keep a third of your staff on over the winter?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, they are um, working less. Um, it's understood that, uh, many of them will work 55 hours or so in the summer months, and then they will work 20 or 25 hours in the winter months. So when we talk about full time, there's a real balance. Um, people take their vacations over the winter months. So I think this is the kind of area where everybody can breed again and we we'll take that advantage, but we make sure they live on the farm. So, you know, they don't have to worry about their ongoing living expenses. Um, so this is one way in which we can um, we make sure that they meet their uh, annual needs uh, in order to be able to to live sustainably. Um, and um, so they don't have to look for a job over the winter. They know that they have money saved up in order to be able to get by on that 20 or 25 hours over the winter. But having housing provided is really important in that scenario, that they don't have to worry about, you know, housing, about heat and light and everything else.
0: So Jean-Paul, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what it was like getting started in CSA farming back in. Now, again, you and I stumbled earlier because it's in my notes that you developed the vegetable garden at Hawthorne Valley Farm um, prior to starting. Roxbury Farm in 1990. I mean, this is in the this is in the dawn of the CSA era here in in the United mm-hmm. States. You tell me about Correct. getting started and 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 how you how you got that whole ball rolling when there weren't any models to follow.
1: Yeah, um, you know, one of these things. <laughs> um, it was really that uh, I was approached by uh, someone in New York City, Jonathan Hilton. Um, They had uh, attended a lecture by the executive director of the Biodynamic Association, Rod Shouldice, about CSA. And um, Rod had seen what I'd done in Minnesota. Uh, He was aware of uh, my work at Hawthorne Valley. And so these people were looking for uh, a vegetable farmer. And um, I had just, um, you know, I I just started Roxbury Farm uh, based on, wholesaling vegetables. I I work with two organic wholesalers focusing mostly on lettuce and tomatoes and some greens. And, um, so, um, Jonathan, you know, called me up and said, like, you're willing to come to the city and talk about this. So we had this meeting on West 13th street in Manhattan and, um, I said like, sure, let's have it a go because the wholesale business at that point was very, um, volatile. Um, we were just in a takeover of a large organic wholesaler from the West Coast, was trying to gain monopoly on the East Coast. And uh, there was some cutthroat pricing going on there that made me d- diversify my uh, market portfolio actually quite a bit. Um, I moved away from the traditional organic wholesale business to institutions, the Culinary Institute, Omega Institute, and others, um, which didn't really demand organic certification. And... Um, and so it's like, well, this might fit in. And also what we fit in is then uh, going to the green market in New York City. So we went to the green market and also met our members in New York City. And what happened was that a year later, and one of the things I told Jonathan, he says, you know, traditionally, nobody actually went to the city. And I, I, I actually questioned that. I said, it's really hard this whole CSA model was based off a farm, whereby Trouker imagined that the future churches, right, of a community, would be the farms. So instead of people going to church, they would go to a farm. It was like this incredible, you know, um, this vision that Trauger brought about what CSA farms could become. They could really be a community builder, uh, like churches have been a community builder. Not that the CSA would be a religion, not in by any means of the word, but more like, you know, when you have a community. You know this could be another place where people go to create community just like they go to church to create community aside from you know um um, you know their religion um so i think and i said to john i was like well that's not really we're going to be in the city it's going to be a very loose relationship and i actually called trowker up and i said trowker can you actually start a csa farm in the city And uh, it was a long path, and it's like, well, he said, people in the city have to eat too, right? And that was it, so all right, let's just try it, let's do it. And then a year later, um, we got a, um, I got a call from Albany, from the Committee for Peace and Justice, who had heard what we were doing. Uh, And the concept that we were doing in New York City was very simple, we said like, you support the farm, and then the vegetables are free. And that's really how we spread the idea of CSA. It was not like, you know, come here, get your vegetables and this and that. It was really about, this is about supporting a farm in their operating budget. And then if they're successful, the vegetables are free. And the Committee for Peace and Justice really liked what um, they heard about that. And they contacted me and said like, we would like to do this in the capital district as well and um, we had to get the blessing from the bishop. We met with the bishop, Bishop Howard, and he immediately got it. He said like, this is a peace and justice initiative. This is about bringing equity uh, to agriculture and to the farm workers in, in a very practical way. And uh, he gave his blessing, and uh, we immediately expanded that second year to 300 members. Um, so it went very quickly because of the the way in which we made our connection first in Manhattan through the Center for Anthroposophy, and then in the north with um, the the diocese. Um, So, and then we um, pretty much weaned off our wholesale business and continued serving the CSA and the institutions for uh, the next 10 years, until we became completely community supported um, once we made the move to Kinderhook. We moved the farm from Cloverick where we were for 10 years to a new location for long-term land tenure, um, then in, uh, in 2000.
0: So with a thousand members in your CSA and, and marketing at somewhat of a distance to at least a portion of those, how do you guys maintain the connection with your membership?
1: Um, well, we have a, we have always emphasized that, um, we really need an active membership. Um, we, um, we, we, uh, we originally had core groups, and the core groups really our ambassadors to the members. So the, the sites, we have 17 different sites. They are quite active. Um, they form their own community around themselves. So right now they are maybe less in community with the farm as they are also with each other. Although a significant number of these people come to work days uh, or they come to a festival at the farm and they are being kept up to date every week through a weekly newsletter. So they will um, they will hear what is happening on the farm. And now with uh, Johannes, um, uh, our son, uh, being back at the farm, um, he takes a lot of pictures and sometimes videos, and he reports really a lot of that. So there's a more audiovisual ways in which people can um, uh, have news about what is happening uh, at the farm. But there's not like in a traditional sense, like with Trauger, and Anthony and Lincoln, where you have a real community around the farm that sits around once a year and pledges their support to a pledge system. We are in that sense more traditional uh, with a share price and which differs from side to side, but you know, it, it, is, it is less um, of the original impulse as Trauger had imagined that.
0: I did want to make sure that if if there was something more you wanted to say about the farmer training program, that we grabbed that.
1: Let me just say about the farmer training program that, um, so we we will be accepting applicants again, um, and we will open up again between uh, July and August. People check our website. Uh, We're looking for people who are absolutely committed uh, to be long-term agriculture. This is a training uh, for people who aspire to work on the mid-scale and to make agriculture their living. And so um, we had 60 applicants last year. We were very happy about the tremendous interest that people have shown. It's a very strong selection process. We take it very seriously. And um, we just want to invite people to uh, follow us and apply and uh, follow us online on all the activities that are happening here at the Hub. Awesome.
0: With that, Jean-Paul, we're going to turn to our lightning round after we get a quick word from one more sponsor. This lightning round and the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Small Farm Central, providers of Member Assembler CSA management software. Member Assembler makes it easy for CSA members to sign up and for you to manage the process, all in a flexible, easy to customize format. And once you have your members signed up, Member Assembler gives you better ways to get your CSA information to your staff, including customizable pickup lists, box building tools, and calculated harvest lists. It makes it easy for CSA members to update their shares and request vacation holds, and provides a platform for segmented and scheduled email messaging. Plus, Member Assembler's auto rollover tool has been shown to increase retention by six to seven percent, all on its own—a feature that can be worth hundreds of dollars per member in lifetime value. Member Assembler helps you spend less time in the office and more time doing what you do best: farming. SmallFarmCentral.com. Jean-Paul, what's your favorite tool on the farm?
1: Oh, my favorite tool in the farm. Well, probably the baler. Um, I love baling hay. Probably not the one you one one you uh, expected to hear, huh? No,
0: because <laughs> we, we of course we didn't talk about we didn't talk about the hay. What what about the what about the baler? What what does it for you about that tool?
1: Oh well, this is uh, a particular baler. It's a baler, and uh, you know, I really um, the last uh, number of years that I was still at Roxbury, I really felt like I want to be able to get a good grass-fed beef product. And um, it's all in the forage. And so if it is all in the forage, yes, you can grow good forage, but then you also have to be able to preserve it. So um, this particular baler um, makes a very, very tight bale. We bale at about 40% moisture and then we wrap it and it becomes baleage. And our grass uh, clover mix, it's uh, we we bring our meat to the butcher and uh, it just has beautiful marbling and uh, I think we we got the greatest compliment we could ever get which is that the butcher himself wants to buy one animal a year from us i mean he sees a lot of animals but he wants our animal for his own use so to me that's like okay we're doing something right but you know that baler has something to do with it of course you know there's a whole thing behind it that you have to make sure that your nutrient budgeting is correct for your hay fields and pastures and everything else but forage is such a pleasure and i love making hay it's just uh you know it's just something that I, it's my quality of life moment making hay.
0: That's awesome. And, and now if I ask, what's your favorite crop to grow, are you going to turn around and say, hay as well? <laughs>
1: Possibly, but I really, I really enjoy uh, growing. Um, now I'm going to give you another answer here. Yes. hay, of course, but I really enjoy bell beans and I really enjoy Laria. So again, these are two green manure crops. Um, this will be, and if you would ask me, uh, what vegetables do I like? Um, I really like carrots. Uh, I think carrots is a great crop. It's been undervalued in the marketplace tremendously, but um, uh, it's it's really nice to uh, grow. Uh, and the other one is, is sweet potatoes. I like root crops in general. If I want to select any crop in my vegetables that I really enjoy a lot, is uh, growing vegetables on ridges. Yeah.
0: And finally, Jean-Paul, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, so we're talking way back
1: in time here, what would it be? If I would tell myself something, um, well, you know, <laughs> I had the, you know, I've been fortunate that I had really good mentors. And so, uh, my mentors told me everything that I really needed to hear back then. And, um, I would say that uh, one of my mentors was my teacher in economics. Um, and I had mentors like in a diversity of places. So you have farming mentors and my teacher economics was a mentor. Um, and he said like, you know, he said, you are about to graduate from school right now. He said, just realize that uh, farming is a great way to lose a lot of money. <laughs> All yeah. right, he said, like, well, he said, what I want you to do now, he said, I want you to do what you really want to do, what you really believe in that you should be doing. And he said, like, become good at it and become the best. He said, because he said, ultimately, since, mon- since farming is a good way to lose a lot of money, he said, like, you know, you can't really make too many mistakes, And he said, and you become really good at what you like doing most. He said, you're also going to find is that money actually flows to good ideas and good execution. He said, like, don't ever worry about the money. He said, because the money will find you. And I thought that was a really great piece of advice. And I followed that and it actually works.
0: Thank you so much, John Paul, for being on the farmer to farmer podcast today and, and letting me mark something off on my bucket list. (laughs)
1: Well, (laughs) I feel deeply on
0: it. All right. So, wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 110 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Cortens. That's C O U R T E N S. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk behind farming equipment and high quality garden tools in North America and by Growing for Market, where you can get 20% off your subscription with the code podcast at checkout. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, if you like the show, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review, or talk to us in the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmer to slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world and you can help. And speaking of help, people who've helped include Dan Brisebois, who I'd like to thank for his support of the show. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmer to And I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there.
1: And keep track. Of